Welcome to Teachings in the Air. Air, air. podcast with Jerry Oldman, coming to you from Hunkameenam Territory with a podcast series about Indigenous men's health and wellness. We aim to inspire, motivate, and empower Indigenous men to be sound in mind, body, and spirit, because that's what health means. This is Teachings in the Air with Jerry Oldman. Today's podcast is called Jerry's Road to Reconciliation, or saying hello to my problems so I can say goodbye to them. You know, it took me a while to figure out this podcast. You know, what's going on in the world social media, we can see it, we can hear it, we can feel it. And at times, um, I wonder, what's the truth? You know, so I, I wanted to do this to, I guess, to solidify my understanding of what Jerry's to do. What am I to do? You know, I grew up in an inclusive home. A home where there was good food, laughter, support, encouragement. You know, we were all part of it. Help with uh, cutting wood, packing water, feeding the chickens, you know. <laughs> oh, it was good. Safe. Never hungry. Warm. Oh, that was good. Just thinking about it, I smile and give thanksgiving to my family. So that's my world as a child, as a small child, you know, between one and five years old. That was my life. Didn't know anything else. All I knew was that if I was hungry, I'd have food. You know, if I got hurt, someone would would help me. So I grew up like that, and it wasn't until I went to school that I all of a sudden didn't feel included. You know, the... That system, 
of education, of putting knowledge into Jerry, and if he makes a mistake, strike him. Oh, my gosh, that, that shocked me. Because I hadn't experienced that before. If I made a mistake before, they would help me correct it. Not in school. Oh, it got so that I was afraid to to do anything. Because if I make a mistake, I'll get, I might get hit or humiliated, something thrown at me. You know, and I think of those times that, uh, you know, that relationship with education started off in a harmful way for Jerry. You see, and I think about it now, right now, there never was a relationship with those teachers because reconciliation is about repairing relationships, restoring friendly relationships. And not one bit of friendliness for me in that system. And I think about it now, that's pretty shocking. So that's how I started not to feel included in that school. You can see that I was in these little pods or these little spaces. First off, there's a home, which was good. Then I go to the school, and I, I meet other children. But the atmosphere wasn't there for us to, I guess you could say, form relationships. We're all, it was a rigid structure, lineups. We, we had playground, we had, there was some fun in there. But always there's that, for me, that fear of making a mistake. And it wasn't, you know, and I started to go through that system, and it was the same right to, I guess you could say, grade 10. And even into 11 and 12, because in grade 10, that's when I integrated. Going to school with white teenagers. Oh, that was a culture shock, because up until then, all my classmates were indigenous. In my community, we're all Stetlium. No, we didn't speak the language or do ceremony or ritual at school. You know, we just... <laughs> I remember we'd sing, uh, O Canada, God Save the Queen. You know, do that kind of stuff. And then... Uh, that integration... You know, it was then I could really see the difference. You know, it, it seemed to me that everybody would talk at once or weren't afraid to. Whereas we were, I guess you could say, taught respect for others by listening to them, not interrupting. 
No, no, not in this system. I remember my friend and I were, I think our first day in school, in high school, off the res, off the residential school grounds in the town of Camelops. The bell rang and we're, we went out because we have to change classrooms. And we're standing against a wall and all these students were around us, milling around. And to me, everybody seemed to be talking at once. I remember saying to my friend, who's listening? And he says, I don't know. You know, so there was a culture shock there. It was totally different. After it was after I left, I graduated, and I left the school system. Then I went to work. I went to work in a logging camp on a railroad, and then I went home. Oh, I worked as a painter in Vancouver, a house painter. And then I'm just running away those times from my memories by drinking and doing drugs. It was after I left the city and went back to the res. That's when I started to learn about what happened about the Indian reservation. I went out with my dad and he showed me this peg in the ground white peg with numbers on it. And the letters I-R, Indian Reserve, number one. It says that they surveyed, put these pegs in to show what was Indian Reservation. This became our boundary. And I see in that drawing lines on the map is it become almost like a prison. It's told we couldn't hunt beyond those boundaries and fish before. We had to get a permit. It's going, oh. I could see the poverty in my community, the unemployment. And I, uh, I started, of course, to ask. I became involved in the community by becoming part of the council. And it was there that I started to be politicized. I guess that would be the word, politicized, or starting to understand what happened. I hear the, the words, land title. The words of B.C. is Indian land. You know, and I I heard these wonderful orators, 
talking about rights. And I remember um, first time I heard the Declaration of the Lulwood Tribe. It was a declaration that was signed on May the 10th, 1911 by our leadership of our communities, 11 communities, Statlium communities. They made a declaration. I imagine they must have had an ally help them do the words, but the feelings in it were there, and I, I remember reading it. And I'll read you part of it, because this started to form Jerry. We, the underwritten chiefs of the Lulwa tribe, declare as follows. We speak the truth, and we speak for the whole tribe, numbering about 1,400 people at the present time. You can see that smallpox had taken its toll. We claim that we are the rightful owners of our tribal territory and everything pertaining thereto. We have always lived in our country. At no time have we ever deserted it or left it to others. We have retained it from the invasion of other tribes at the cost of our blood. Our ancestors were in possession of our country centuries before the whites ever came. It is the same as yesterday when the latter came, and alike, like the day before when the first fur trader came. We are aware the B.C. government claims our country, like all other Indian territories in B.C., but we deny their right to it. We never gave it or sold it to them. They certainly never got the title to the country from us, neither by agreement nor conquest, and none other than us could have any right to give them title. In early days, we considered white chiefs like a superior race that never lied nor stole, and all of us acted wisely and honorably. We expected they would lay claim to what belonged to themselves only. In these considerations we have been mistaken and gradually have learned how cunning, cruel, and untruthful and thieving some of them can be. We have felt keenly the stealing of our lands by the B.C. government, but we could never learn how to get redress. We felt helpless and dejected, but lately we begin to hope. We think that perhaps, after all, we may get redress from the greater white chiefs away in the king's country or in Ottawa. It seemed to us all white chiefs and governments were against us, but now we commence to think we may get a measure of justice. And I read that, and uh, 
the leaders of my people at the time followed that, talked about that. So that was my background on this whole idea of nationhood or my people. And I, um, I started to feel proud of my people. That we'd never given up. That feeling of belonging to the land. You know, it was a. Uh, real struggle for us as 11 communities to work together in this regard because of the tactics of those governments they followed the way of divide and conquer it was very efficient very effective So all of a sudden, you know, not all of a sudden, but gradually and over the years, people started to, individuals started to make noise about harm. You know, we had people going to jail for hunting and fishing, for not not allowing their children or saying, no, you're not going to take my children to residential school, potlatching. You know, we, we were going through that. It happened to us, and we were recovering from those events. We were objects of spiritual and cultural conquest so that people could get to the resources, other people than us. It was a... We didn't know about this hunger, this love of power that these newcomers had, that they were motivated by individual personal wealth to have this power of being richer than others. We didn't know that. Or my people didn't know that, I should say. So, 1995, even before that, there were people all of a sudden saying, hey, I was hurt at a residential school. And a whole movement started. First off, criminal charges against people, against individuals that abused children in a residential school. That started. Then in 1995, there started to be civil, civil court action 
about personal pain and suffering that individuals were going through because of what happened at the residential school. And I, I started to support survivors that were going to court. The first, one of the first things I learned, I remember, was even how this come to be, that there's these court cases. The first step was to prove liability. And I, and I was told by a lawyer that there would be no cases if there's no liability. That means that the government and the churches that were running the residential schools became liable because they knew that there was harm being done in the residential school and did nothing to stop it, so they became liable in the court of law of this country. Oh, I remember the numbers. Gee, one day there's 5,000 Warriors, wounded warriors, I said I was abused at the residential school, jumped to 12,000. Oh, people were coming forward, taking on the government and the churches, one by one. I heard heartbreaking. stories, history from survivors going through the civil court process. Because in the civil court they were trying to find out how much they were liable for. So they would ask questions about before residential school, during residential school, and after residential school. That was a long process. Expensive, costly for the governments. I remember one of the churches saying, we're going to be financially bankrupted by these court cases. <laughs> I remember I was angry. I said, well, you have a choice to be financially bankrupt or morally bankrupt. I remember telling these church people, I know that if Jesus came down today, he would tell you to make it right. And that's when I said you could be financially or morally bankrupt. You know, the civil court was going on. Then all of a sudden, there was a class action lawsuit accepted in the courts. And the class action lawsuit was about loss of culture and loss of family. And the class action that was accepted in the courts of Canada included the children of survivors because of the intergenerational impacts. The government of the day settled out of court. 
And I think about it, they were protecting their taxpayers because one of the lawyers I was talking to was saying, if this class action goes through and is successful, it's going to cost the government billions of dollars. Because there was cultural genocide. The families were, you know, fractured and harmed. It's causing a lot of pain and suffering. So the they settled out of court. And the out of court settlement. And it included common experience payment where oh the part that got me very angry was the out of court settlement was only between the residential school survivors and the government of Canada. They excluded the children. And I observed, because I'd been working in it for years, and heard this, uh, the history that the children were hurt. Because the trauma that their parents or grandparents had gone through had never been treated. And there was intergenerational impacts. I was upset. But that promise of money for survivors, it, it, it was going to go through. Common experience payment became reality. Then there was commemoration. There's a fund set aside for commemoration to communities could, you know, put up a, a memorial about the residential school experience. Then there was a Healing Foundation. <laughs> Turned out to not be a foundation because it ran out of money. Foundations generally go on and on and on and on. Then, of course, there was a TRC, Truth Telling and Reconciliation Commission, was to be established. So the TRC was between. First Nations in Canada to restore friendly relationships, to restore mutual respect. As the truth part was it was formed to reveal past wrongdoings that happened in the residential school in the hope of resolving conflict. You know, they had principles at TRC. We had brilliant people being part of the commission. It went through its struggles too, but they they came up with a, their report. But their, part of their principles was, number one, restore what must be restored. Repair what must be repaired. Return what must be returned. 
And that's where I started to have my doubts. How do you restore a language? Of course, you put resources into it. You, you find ways to help people restore that lost language or a language that's severely damaged, stolen. How do you repair broken families or broken individuals? By providing relevant healing for them. Return what must be returned. Oh, I thought about our tiny little reservation. Because Canada is the second largest landmass country in the world. Number two in the whole wide world. Other countries are small, like England. You think of England, how small it is, that island. And lots of resources in Canada. So how do you return what's been taken? What? You know, that that really... You know, I, I don't consider myself a greedy person. But I would compare and contrast when I'd leave a reservation and i go to town or Vancouver or Kamloops or other cities. And i see what they have for their children and playgrounds, rec centers, swimming pools, tennis courts, all of those things. And I think about my poor community. If they returned, like uh, Victoria, just, Victoria Day just passed, and um, <laughs> these beautiful people who started this canoe journey down the Fraser River. And they called it the Queen's Promise. Apparently, Queen Victoria had promised that 25% of what is taken from the indigenous peoples in Canada would be returned to them. So they're calling it 25 cent day. So I paddled with them to make a statement, to remind people of what was taken. Apparently reminding them doesn't motivate people to return it. You know, the, to repair what must be repaired, our spiritual leaders, and practices were outlawed. Objects of spiritual value are taken or destroyed. And our hereditary leadership, our government system, was taken or outlawed and replaced with a Canadian government system called the Indian Act with relatively powerless band councils. I know that's true because I was one of them. I was the chief counselor of my community. And of course, the reason why I'm even talking about reconciliation today is the res schools, the residential schools, which were brought about to eliminate us as a distinct people. 
Some people say there must be people there that wanted to educate you. There were, but the political will was to eliminate us. Well, the one that started this whole business or pushed it was Dunkel Campbell Scott. He said the policy is to continue, is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada. That's a powerful statement. All, uh, everybody would follow this policy. It's a policy is a plan of action on how to deal with a problem, and we're identified as a problem. For over a hundred years, the central goal of Canada was to eliminate our governments, ignore our rights, terminate treaties. To use assimilation to cause our people to cease to exist as legal, social, cultural, religious, and racial entities in Canada. The territories were seized and we were forcibly put on reservations where our movement at the beginning was restricted. That's what I read in the TRC report. That's what it was about. So, of course, I was aware of this potlatch law, reservations, before this started happening because of my... um, our leaders were talking about the declaration, about what happened, and trying to find a way to to get things right. They were, I remember one of my elders were saying, we would go meet with the government. Uh, I, he says, I remember our leaders would be going and someone would go from house to house to collect resources so they could travel to Victoria. They were doing their best. They were doing their best. And I look at it now, it wasn't about repairing a relationship. More like creating a relationship. You know that to create a more equitable, inclusive society, it's going to take work in reconciliation between two groups I can say the Statlium in Canada. It's going to take political will on both sides. Joint leadership, trust building, accountability, investment of resources. There's, there's these calls to action. You know, to the justice people, the health people, all of the 
Canadians. So that political will. You know, I see parts of it. I see parts of the system saying, yes, we want to make it right. We want to repair, take an ownership of accountability of harm by our system. Those are individuals in those systems. So I um, became conflicted what the ideology of this TRC. Uh, what is it? Uh, foundation of Jerry. Is that I, I want goodness for the children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren. Following that old tradition of Make lives better for the ones following you. The seven generations from now, they're going to have water, they're going to have food, they're going to have shelter, they're going to have goodness. Oh, that's an ancient value that people lived by. When I acknowledge people now, indigenous people, I'm thanking them for keeping this country pristine while we're here by ourselves. There was no Europeans I remind people there was nothing going extinct when we're here by ourselves, that we had a way of life to ensure sustainability. You know, at times in my life growing up, I needed to do reconciliation with my own ancestors, my own hereditary leaders. Because I, I used to wonder, why didn't you have a tougher immigration policy when those Europeans first come here? Why didn't you have extreme vetting? And I realized they're simply following their way of life. They'd help people when they come to their homeland. They would feed them. That's the first thing. Everywhere I go, people will feed you, indigenous people. I've been across Canada. I go to communities and they'd feed me, following that tradition. So I had to acknowledge that I was wrong that they were, at that time also, still recovering from the smallpox epidemic. And after that, uh, Spanish flu and the introduction of alcohol to our systems and the different sicknesses. So I let go of my resentment to my ancestors. And I started to see the beauty of my ancestors, the patience, that voice of reason, that 
my imagination if we fought back maybe we would have been rubbed out because our numbers were so few if we shot at them maybe they would have shot us all I have those I have those thoughts once in a while Over the years, I started to see what happened. And I realized of our trauma, my trauma. And I talk about the six R's, about how racism has cut me, has impacted my life, how religion has cut me has impacted my life, has made, at the beginning, question my own ways, question our own spiritual practices, how the reservation has impacted my life, like a minimum security prison, one of the elders said, that's what it is, Jerry, it's a minimum security prison. How the residential schools messed me up about myself. About the RCM police. Where I'd rather ignore crime than call them because I don't trust them. About the removal of children through the 60 scoop. You know, I felt all of those. Directly and indirectly. That trauma. They were crimes against humanity. And uh, government and churches became liable. So that's why the TRSA came about. So since 95, 1995, this would be, I guess you could say, in the background of Jerry's mind, reconciliation. And I think about the meaning of the word, to repair a relationship. Of course, I would say, <laughs> what relationship? And I, and I started to realize that there were Canadians that thought the same way. I didn't break the relationship personally. I didn't start the residential schools. You know, so there were some people like me who were thinking the same way. Why? Then I realized that all of the children are relying on us adults to do the right thing. If we spiral down to a violent conflict, it's going to make us all behind. So uh, today I consider myself lucky 
because I'm basically healthy, I'm doing good, I can walk, I, <laughs> I have a sound mind, body, and spirit. I started to follow the personal conduct teachings passed on by elders, how to behave in public, how to behave inside of myself. I had to reconcile with Jerry, forgive Jerry, repair my relationship with Jerry because I lost it for 14 years. So I made this commitment to change, to heal, for the betterment of my life, for Jerry's life. That's what it was about. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired of being angry, being afraid, being depressed. So I started uh, developing a wellness way of life. You've heard me say wellness is an active pursuit of finding a way to correct it when your mind is confused or it's filled with anger or fear or depression to go out and look for a way to resolve that so that you can be original again and be live in the present. To look for help when my body's hurting, when something's going wrong with my body, and also to be careful what I put in my body. To reconcile with my body and apologize to my body for all the harm I've done to my body personally. Not being careful about what I put into this body. Think of all the drugs I've done and the booze I drank. I apologize to my body. I'm sorry. And my spirit. Because it's the truth. You know, in residential school and after I left and, you know, for 14 years, my life was hateful to me. I didn't really want to live. Really. I was functioning. But I didn't feel contentedness in my own skin. I didn't have this feeling of I want to live. I want to be successful. And I want to be kind. I was kind. I had some success. You know, but this, the part about being fully participant in life was missing. So on that journey of healing, of doing what I could to make Jerry original again before harm that was done to his mind, his body, and his spirit, that's what I started to do, actively looking for them, you know, I, I remember I went on juice fasts, cultural fasts. I trained my body. I looked for teachers, went to ceremonies, you know, to, to change and work at making this change permanent. That's my road to reconciliation. In that process, I learned to forget about Jerry. I started to think about the people, think about Mother Earth. 
found consistent ways of grounding myself when I get triggered and from my old traumas or the historical traumas about the theft of land, about the theft of children, all of those truths that happened. I'd find ways to ground myself. Because I would see things on Twitter, on Instagram, in the newspapers, on TV, that would constantly remind me of what we're facing. And I would hear both sides, negative and positive statements about what happened and what to do. So, I, you know, that, that, that forced me to look at myself and say, okay, Jerry, what are you going to do? Become a warrior for the people, for the land. Now, I have this incredible will to live, to be successful day in, day out, and to be kind and compassionate with other human beings that I meet face to face. And I'm reminded of my teacher telling me, one of my teachers, I'm so blessed I have many teachers, tell me, Jerry, you by yourself cannot change society, but what you can change is yourself. So that's what I do. When I see something in society at large in the world that's so upsetting, I realize I cannot change that, but I must change myself so I'll be functional and I will continue to contribute to goodness. That's what I, I'm about now. To accept I have no control over people that I have control over Jerry. That all meaningful change in Jerry's life happens from within. So that's what I set out to do. I reconciled with Jerry. Reconciling with Canada? You know, I, I think that's probably the toughest thing, and I, I've accepted it's not going to happen in my lifetime. You know, the principle of repair what's been needs to be repaired, return what needs to be returned. You know, that's to keep myself in a good way. Because I've read articles and I've heard people say that stress is like AIDS. If you're stressed out all the time, you're going to open yourself up to cancer, to heart disease, to all of the sicknesses that happen, the mental health issues that happen. If you just keep that inside of you and just let it grow, grow, grow inside of me. I'm so glad I found out that I must free myself. That I must soon as it comes up in me to find a way to ground myself, to free myself by talking to others, going to a ceremony, sitting down with the hand drum and singing my heart out, you know, going for a walk, doing something, rather than sit there and stew. I, I do not want my body to get cancer or any of the sicknesses. I was reading... Um, 
article on mental health and wellness. And they had done studies on people that were negatively angry, not having a way to get rid of it. They're saying that it opens the door to cancer, to depression. So I don't want to go there. So I've been following this, um, these words that come through the air to me from my friend. You cannot say goodbye to your problems till you say hello to them. So I've been following that, that path since I heard those words. Oh, some of those problems are hard to say hello to. You'd rather just wish they'd go away. I don't want to think about you. And I have some of those in my head and my being. But my intention is to say, say hello to them. So I start saying to myself, I am here to take action to improve my situation. You know, and uh, to admit that addictions in my life created strong em negative emotions that I had to free myself from because they developed habits inside of me, interpersonal relationship habits. Because I did not face what caused me pain and suffering, I have suffered and shared it with others. As a result, my life became unbalanced and I spent time being aggressive or passive. I realized we're not alone. Many have internalized negative emotions about our people, such as those words that come through the air and I heard them as a child, that lazy Indian, that crazy Indian, drunken Indian. So I put it in my mind. I'm going to change the way I think of myself and my life. Accept responsibility for my body by loving and caring for myself. Learn to maintain and strengthen my spirit consistently. Learn to express my feelings in a positive way. You know, to uplift my spirit and find joy and beauty in life. Today I commit myself to taking action to improve my situation. I will practice and use the gift of listening, the highest form of respect to give another human being is to listen to them with everything you got. I was taught that and I believe that. The gift of communication, of course, is which listening and speaking or expressing yourself through music or art. There's many ways to communicate with the world. The gift of affection you know, that exchange of goodness that's so beautiful. 
the gift of generosity. Oh, and I just thank all of those elders and knowledge keepers that were generous with me, taught me how to build a sweat lodge, the medicines to use, you know, how to do music, you know, ceremony and ritual. All of those ones. So I, too, must be generous. My guidelines to live by today are to accept my original self. Not try to be anybody else, but just to know who I am. To set realistic goals. I set goals sometimes, it's too much, and then I beat myself up because I didn't do it. So be realistic and say, I'm going to do what I can, and I'm going to do that to the best of my ability. I want to reach out for help as well as help others. Oh, it took me a long time to learn how to reach for help, to ask for help. I guess the biggest, probably the biggest one was to forgive myself and also to forgive those that hurt me. You know, that forgive part was tough for me. Then when I learned that it was to let go, I was happy to forgive the government of Canada, the residential schools, racists, all of that. I'm going to let you go. I'm not caring you anymore. I, I don't own that. You, that's you. You keep that. I'm not carrying it anymore. Lighten my load, believe me. with the help of the brothers and sisters, you know, that are on this road, I shall achieve a good quality of life. By, cha by changing myself to be the best of my, to be the best of my ability and live according to the laws of our ancestors. They had beautiful laws. They had brilliant laws. They had laws that would teach about inclusivity, that would discourage greed, personal greed. I decided to stop hurting and to start living. That's been my goal. So this is my you know, there will be more podcasts coming, but this has been the conclusion of Indigenous is. And, uh, for me to be Indigenous, I needed to learn about repairing relationships, but more importantly, forming relationships. You know, and I think about those teachings of giving away the first, first kill, First hat, first drum, whatever's first, you give it away. And don't give it to family, you give it to another family so you form a relationship with them. That's a beautiful teaching. Forming relationships. Probably more important than repairing relationships in order to form those relationships and to maintain them. Because we all share the space. I can form relationships with people in Manitoba or when I go back to B.C. in B.C. 
and I do that. So that's been my road. I rejected reconciliation when I first heard it. I accepted today that our people were great reconciliators. You know, I don't know if reconciliator is a word, but I had seen them in. You know, what we thought would hurt people's feelings was when we, something sacred would fall off our regalia and we're doing ceremony. Oh, they'd stop it and they'd pick it up and they would ask for forgiveness from the people for me making a mistake. You know, we would reconcile. We would repair that relationship. They'd have shame feasts and they'd say, and they would give and give and give to the victim of the harm until they said, that's enough. Well, I'm never going to speak about this again. That's a beautiful way. Like my chief said, we defended our land at the cost of our blood. That was about resources. We didn't want anybody to go hungry in our clan, our tribe. People would come and take it, we'd defend it. So I get that. And we have reconciled with our traditional enemies. Not all of us, you know, but there's been moves by leadership to do that. So that's been part of my struggle, I guess, is negative leadership. Leaders that say, let's do this, and people say, okay, it's not right, it's wrong, it's causing harm. But I must reconcile with that and carry on with my guidelines, how I want to live, what I want to do, who I want to support. So that's my road, that's my path. That's what I'm going to follow. So I'm looking forward to upcoming podcasts. We're going to we're exploring different topics and different ways, different panels, different things to do, and I'm looking forward to it because it's all about inspiration, motivation for healing and wellness, and that's what my road has been to reconciliation. It's surprising enough as reconciling with Jerry. And teaching me to form relationships and the power in that. That saying, we can do what I can't do is so true. So I'd just like to thank you for listening to this podcast and um, those of you that listen to it. And hopefully it has caused you something to inspire you about yourself. And I'd like to thank my young crew that remind me I'm lucky to have them. <laughs> it's so true because they get the teachings in the air. They get it out there. So I'm going to sign off now and, uh, you know, give thanksgiving for all the goodness I've had in my life and the goodness that's yet to come. Bye-bye.